Well, thank you all so much for coming this evening and for being with us on this not only special, but I think historic occasion. Um, and it is a true honor to see so many friends and students in the audience. I'm particularly honored that so many of you who attend the Maine College of Art are with us tonight. Um, it is my great privilege to welcome Nan Golden and Michael Zilka to this open conversation about Nan's work and their friendship and this special exhibition, Nan Golden, As the World Turns. I want to just take a quick moment for a shout out to my co-curator for this exhibition, Mira Zilka, without whose intelligence, generosity, and graciousness, we would not all be here tonight. <laughs> Nan and Michael met in 1998 in Houston and became fast friends, but their lives by that time had overlapped for two decades in New York City. Michael from the perspective of the music business and Nan from the perspective of the visual arts. Michael has been a serious and sustained collector of Nan's work for the past two decades. And one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, and perhaps we'll start there after this brief introduction, is a question from Nan, which is how her work fits into his collection. But before we take on this and many other topics, I want to start by introducing two people to, uh, to you all who need no introduction in this room and in this community. Nan Golden is among the most beloved and important contemporary artists throughout the world. She is known as a, photographer, as a photographer, but I believe, and many others join me, that her work truly transcends media. And I would contend that she has done more than any other artist to transform our cultural understanding of photography from what we think of as a medium of description into the primary expressive feeling-driven media of our day. Golden began her career in and around Boston, taking photographs of drag queens who were her friends and roommates in the 1970s. And then later in the 1970s, she relocated to New York City where for the decades since, she has continued to photograph friends, lovers, neighbors, the people who peopled her life. You'll correct me when I'm wrong. OK. <laughs> uh, her Ballad of Sexual Dependency, the multimedia slideshow that combines over 700 photographs with an exceptionally wide-ranging soundtrack, is considered the defining artwork of the past 50 years. And it is among the greatest honors of my professional life, and I think I speak for my colleagues at the museum as well, that we are able to show this work here. The PMA is incredibly proud and happy to have this opportunity. And for that, I wish to thank you both. As much as Nan is what I would consider a museum artist, she is also very profoundly an artist of the book. And her books, including, but, much, but far beyond the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, Give, has given her work an international reach. And I can tell you that as a high school student in New Mexico, I probably never, I didn't see a, a print by Nan Golden until I was in my teens or, or 20s. But that book made me realize how big the world might be. Nan has been awarded dozens of high honors for her art, but a couple that I think are worth calling out here are the Hasselblad Award in 2007, the Edwin McDowell Medal, and the Medal of the City of Paris. Michael Zilka and I first began discussing Nan's work, 
and discovered a shared passion for it in the summer of 2012 when I first arrived here in Portland and had the great pleasure of meeting Michael and Nina Zilka when the museum opened to the Winslow Homer studio. Nina and Michael split their time between their homes in Houston and Scarborough, and they have collected art with sensitivity and depth in both locations. Michael's profound generosity towards artists and his keen intelligence about the stakes and nature of art make him a favorite friend of curators all over the country. But in addition to collecting art, he has pioneered utility-scale green energy solutions for over two decades. Originally from London, Michael lived in New York during the late 1970s through 1986 and was the founder of ZE Records, one of the most prominent New York record labels of its generation. One of the great pleasures of this evening, I hope, will be the chance to listen to Michael and Nina talk about their friendship, their shared interests, and maybe even music. So I want to welcome you both. And I think that um, we're going to talk together for some time and then open up to the audience if you're amenable. Let's start with a question that you pose, Nan, which is for Michael, which is how Nan's work fits into your collection. Can I correct you first? Oh, please. <laughs> I'm not an artist of museums. I'm not an artist of the book. I'm an artist of people. Mm. And that's what I started, and that's what I have the great privilege to continue all over, all over Europe, all over South America, all over America. That's primary for me. Which medium I use is secondary. Mm -hmm. The slideshow started as um, a home movie for the people in it. And it continues to be for the people in it. Mm -hmm. and for the, the various cultures that I'm profoundly concerned with. And whether, you know, I feel sitting up here like I'm tripping, that, <laughs> that I'm sitting here with all these people looking at me and that I've actually attained success for the ballad still does not penetrate. My life is not about that. And I think it's important for people to know that, you know, I'm just, I'm just a little, you know, kid on the street. No matter what you say. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way to start, and I appreciate that correction very much. It does seem to me an important point that um, you start by describing the ballad in the introduction as a visual diary which speaks to how personal it is and how intimate it is to your life. And yet it has become a very public document, as you, as you mentioned. Well, I, I think that what I respond to in Nan's work is what she just talked about, that it is, it's about people and it's a, di and it's, um, a diary, but more importantly, to me, it's also profoundly beautiful work. It's sensual and light and intelligent. And it, it, it's very, very much alive, which is why I think slideshows and grids, and we, um, there are several grids in this show, and some of them Nan and I created together, are so important because there's a, 
there's a movement to grids so that a, a single print can, um, can be very affecting, but it's sort of, it's the cumulative effect of Nan's work that is so powerful. And in terms of how it fits into our co collecting, Nina and I have collected a lot together and then there are areas with, where she focused more and I focused more, in her case, old master drawings. And in my case, there's two artists in particular, Nan and Alighiero <coughs> Boetti, that um, are the two artists I've collected the most in depth and responded to the most. And they have in common this sort of um, intellectual rigor, but allied to great sensuality. And I think that's what I really love mm -hmm. about those two artists. So you left out a big part. <laughs> no, 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 that, there's a sort of, there's a warmth and gauziness to them. And um, it... Um, I love the comparison or the yeah. intersection. Boetti's uh, also a favorite of mine. Yeah. But what I connect to also is that he was a wild man and he was not involved in pleasing anybody. He was on his own. Absolutely. And that's what I love in artists, that's what I love in people. And that's why I don't fit in to a lot of places <laughs> because I'm not interested in pleasing the normal. I'm interested in exploring the corners. Right. And there are a lot of people who respond to that. I remember once um, we were in Paris, um, actually when Sister St. Sybil's was at the Salpetriere, and we walked into the Orangerie and they were showing the ballad. And it was, we had no idea it had been there. And we had just visited the Louvre and I'd shown uh, paintings by my favorite painter, Georges de Latour. And there is actually one grid as you enter this show that um, has a Georges de Latour coupled with, with a picture of, of who is it? Of Siobhan. Of Siobhan. That's in and, honor of you. Yeah. And it's that, your painting. Yeah. It's your de Latour. But, but it's, um, it's a beautiful, but, but anyway, we arrived at the Orangerie and it was packed and there were all these people who were sitting there wrapped and sort of reliving an era or imagining an era that they wish they'd lived in. It always puzzles me, but I have one of my closest friends, his daughter is very jealous that we lived in New York in the, in the 70s. And I, I always think, well, you know, she's going to have 25 more years of life than we are, so <laughs> she, yeah. has, she has a better deal. But she, she says, oh, she's right. that was the time to live. She missed it. She's right. <laughs> it will never go back to that. Can I, can never. I, I, um, I think one of the things that, that ballad really does for so many people, including myself, is it's such a profoundly moving portrait of a generation, it feels like. I don't know how that sounds to your ears, but I think of it as a portrait in a way. And um, 
And, and I do wonder how that, how that sounds to you as a way of thinking about that moment and that community. One minute, I want to finish the story okay. of the Rangerie. Yeah. Okay. That was it? No, that, it was just amazing to see how many generations you had touched and how, um, how universal this work that is cited in a specific place, whether it's Boston at the start of this show or whether it's then New York, and, and, then and the, way, the way in which, and then Paris, and the way it, it and that, that devastating show at the, the Salpetriere is where Commandant Charcot did all his experiments on um, women. women who were unstable or ostensibly unstable. Mental. Yeah. yeah, considered insane. Considered insane. I, I said ostensibly because they weren't necessarily, I mean, they might just sort of, someone might send someone there because they wanted to get rid of wanted, them. Yeah, exactly. And so it was this extraordinary three screens with um, uh, the wax. An bigger, installation. Yeah, with an installation. Yeah. And you walked up. Um, a platform and then you stood on it and you heard this story about Nan and it's about her sister Holly who Barbara Barbara I'm sorry Barbara Holly Barbara Holly who committed suicide but it's an extraordinary piece and actually Zmira was um, studying in France then and I think that was the first time she saw your work your, your co-curator and and um, so the work is tough, but it's, it's not in any way ugly, and it doesn't, re I, I feel like it's embracing, even though it's tough, that it's, it's welcoming to people and it's open because it's someone being honest, and that that's a very big deal. It's not meant to brutalize an audience. And normally, the things I do are dedicated in my head to people. For instance, Sister Saints and Sybils was dedicated to a man who was part of the organization that invited me. And he committed suicide and I, during the show. And I loved him. So the corners get rounded by that love. There's not sharp corners. It's one of the things that you've talked about so much about Anne's work, Michael, is the incredible beauty, even when the subject matter is difficult or might on paper seem contrary to beauty. There is a profound depth of beauty that always anchors the work and holds it um, and, and makes it in a way, I, I love that phrase, it rounds the corners. And <laughs> you want to speak to that? No, I said it. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps we could talk a little bit about the early years of the ballad and the early presentations of the ballad. Well, I, I was at the Boston Museum School at the time, and I was in advanced photography, whatever that was at the time. Schools were different then. We sat in the teachers' cars and drank all day. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of rigorous teaching going on. But I loved the school, and we got graded. 
three times or four times a year. There's a couple of museum school alumni in the audience, so they might remember more about it than I do. <laughs> but I went to Provincetown for a summer, and I didn't want to go back. So I stayed there living in the lesbian uh, community of the 70s. And when I went back to school, I didn't have any uh, negatives or prints to show. So I started putting slides together. And the rest was history. No, and then I, uh, in 19, then I moved to New York in 78. And then in 1980, one of the first slideshows I did in New York was for the Times Square show, put together by a group called CoLab that was really important in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend at the time spun records while I was what you know now is called uh, DJing. Um, it may have been Scratching, that no, but all that yeah. stuff. He was fairly uh, early on that. And he played music while I showed. And then after that, I put a music track on it. But the early shows were shown for the people in the slideshow, most of the audience. And it was shown in an underground theater in New York called Rafiks. The um, bulb would go off, you know, the light <coughs> radiating for the slideshow would blow, and I would go home and get a new one and the audience would be waiting for me. <laughs> That's the kind of audience I love. <laughs> They're not worried about being on time. <laughs> and then during the show, people who didn't like the pictures of them would yell at me, and the people who did would applaud wildly. So that's how I edited. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I, <laughs> I just made it up. <laughs> well, the version that we're showing is kind of a special version because you made it for Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I included, <clears throat> I made it in 2006, mm -hmm. and I had made it before that for, Whit no, not Whitney. Who did I sell to right before you? Well, you wouldn't know. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, was it MoMA? Oh, yeah. So I'd made a kind of traditional, uh, if you call it that, version <coughs> for MoMA, and I changed the slideshow every time I show it. In the 80s, I would change it completely. It took me 10 years to find the length I wanted and the music track. And I don't change the music <coughs> anymore, but I always change the slides, as long as it's analog. And for Michael, I made it really focused on the 70s and 80s in New York. And the music scene, his friends, our mutual friends, it's much more about the 80s than other versions. Some of my musicians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I used some of his musicians that he discovered and produced in the soundtrack. It's a very special experience to be able to see it. We put lots of seating in for everyone. So I'm expecting to clock many people experiencing it in the full 45 minutes during the run of our exhibition. Um, or even better, watch it twice. Um, one of the points that you made when we first started speaking, Michael, is that you all have collaborated. 
And um, one of the things I think that is important about your work, Nan, is that we experience it in many different ways, through the slideshow, through individual prints, through um, grids. And if you all haven't experienced the grids, it's literally what, I'm, what I am saying. The word grid is very descriptive, um, as well as in books. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about your collaboration and a little bit about these different forms that narrative can take in your, in your work. Michael asked me to put grids together. We would have a subject that we wanted to do together. I think the first one was his daughter, Lulu, when she was 16. And I went and photographed her. I really liked her. And afterwards, Michael and I edited and structured the grid together. And then we went on to design a number of grids, including ones that had multiple images, like 20 images. Yeah, the one of Simon has a lot Simon. of them. Simon has how many images? I don't know, a lot. A lot. But, but the first two grids we did together that weren't a single subject, like Lulu, um, are in this show. And um, they're from the ballad, and they're pendants to one another, and one is called the PG grid, and the other is the X-rated grid. <laughs> and it's to the credit of the Portland Museum that it has them out in the open. The first time shown together. Yeah, the first time shown together. So um, the PG grid was in my office, and the X-rated grid was in our basement. <laughs> but but th they very clearly belong to one another. They're, they're um, structured in the identical way, and they both have that blue dress. In <laughs> so, so they, yeah, there's a they, lot of images. They play off each other, yeah. but the X grade goes a little further. But, but that was a fantastic project. Collaboration. That, yeah, that was wonderful. And then we did, we did an AIDS grid. We did the Milky grid for your cat. We, um, my nephew Simone, yeah. a child grid. Mm -hmm. With yes. lots of pictures from yes. a book I did on kids. Yeah. And I don't know a lot Obvious, of them. Many, many. Yeah. yeah. And I apologize for not knowing this. I wish I did. But were these the first grids that you made, Nan? Or had you already been making grids prior to meeting Michael? I don't know. No, you, you had made grids because um, the first work of yours I bought was Relapse Detox. And I'd already made it before I met you? Yes. Okay. You'd already made so it. So that's the answer. So, so it was. Um, so so that would have been an early grid. Yeah. I and didn't, all in the eighties, I wanted to make grids, but I didn't have the money. So right. then, when I started working with a rich dealer, immediately I started making grids because I'd wanted to for ten years. I was. Re I've always been really constrained and rest made restless by the single image. Mm -hmm. There are single images. I love to look at paintings. That's my favorite medium. So normally those are single images, and I love drawings. Other people's single images can move me very deeply. My own occasionally, mm -hmm. but generally I like multiples, mm -hmm. slideshows or grids. The color grid, the blue grid, is not a grid. Mm -hmm. It's broken. The grid is broken. And it's meant to be more like a color field painting. It's mm -hmm. not so gridded. It's not so constructed. 
and hopefully I did five color grids last year. Uh, and I love them. I love them. They haven't been shown at all. Oh, those, we did several grids that were abstract. We did that. Oh, yeah, the psychedelic landscape. We did landscape. that Rothko grid yeah. and the psychedelic that landscape. That psychedelic landscape is yeah. great. So, so what we would do is I, I would just go through, lots of pictures. through lots and lots and lots of pictures with you. And for the, hours, and you'd see what fit together. And I pasted little contact sheet-sized photos together on boards. And that's how I made grids, and I still do. All my assistants want to work on the computer to make grids. And images do not look the same on the computer as they do in real life. No. I've discovered that from recently trying to making a book on a computer. And then when I see the pages, some images really don't work on the page. One of the things that's very special in the show that you lent us from your own studio is the original maquette for the ballad as a book. And you do get a sense from looking at it um, of just how physical it is and the experience. And I, I think on the page I saw there was a little bit of evidence that you had maybe shifted images around in order oh, yeah. to get the sequence that you wanted. There's a lot of glue in that book. There is actually there's a safety pin on the page that we opened oh, really? it to, which is which is it's a feature that I like. The book very was much. made in '86, so that says a mm -hmm. lot. Yeah, yeah. So well, uh, do you collect my work? Oh, because it's beautiful. No, because I love it. <laughs> no, because I I think it's so good and I love it, and it speaks to me. That's the best reason in the world. Yeah. It's the only reason. There's no reason to own anything that doesn't speak yeah, to you. I agree. So one of the things that we talked about in the process of planning the show is your early work in the photographs of the drag queens, which I don't think get shown as often. But we were very keen. And, and you spoke, Nan, in, in conversations with me very movingly about that first body of work. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about, um, uh, about that work and, and um, perhaps its relevance now. It's always relative. It's always been relative. Just more people talk about it now. Um, I was always attracted to drag queens and now called transgender people. And with all respect, that's how we name each other. But in those days, they were drag queens. And I still, that name still rings true to me. I don't, <clears throat> just because that's what they called themselves. <clears throat> and maybe it's a time situation, you know, that word has become unpopular. But I lived with the queens, and I was in love with one of them deeply. And I went to live with them. And I wanted to film them. I made Super 8 movies of them. And then I started taking pictures. But I never, never once thought of them as, say, men dressed as women. It never crossed my mind. It just didn't. It's like color blindness. Mm -hmm. I had gender blindness, I guess. And people would say to me, Oh, you're living with a man dressed as a woman. I didn't <coughs> even know what they were talking about. It was not part of my life to think of my friends that as anything but exactly who they were and who they wanted to be. 
And I've respected that in my pictures of them. I never tried to undress them. They didn't want to be nude and naked in my pictures. And I never, I never crossed any lines that would show any disrespect. I, I had them developed at the local drugstore. And the original little three, three by fives, I still have a lot, except the ones that were stolen by some of my friends, not you. And um, then I started, so when I brought the, the pictures back from the pharmacy, uh, everyone would look at them and they would make piles of who had the most. And <laughs> then they would literally tear up the ones they didn't want. And I always respected that. My photography was secondary to my love for them. And all I wanted to show was how beautiful they were. I wanted to put them on the cover of Vogue. That was my dream. I wanted to be a fashion photographer in order to do that. And now I do that. Now, 30 years later, I can put anybody on the cover of Vogue, basically, that I want to. Or other, there are many genders on the cover of Vogue now. Mm -hmm. It's a profound cultural shift. What? I, I said it's a profound cultural shift. I remember yeah. reading about the bar the other side and reading that it was one of the few places where gays and lesbians could dance together without worrying. And I thought, what an amazing change in our culture for that to have been such a free environment. And I do think that the photographs are filled with joy, those, those early It was a really hard life. Yeah. The queens couldn't walk down the street in the daytime, literally. It was dangerous for them. So there's a lot of darkness under, underneath. Mm -hmm. Darkness and light. I ran into one of my friends from the 70s. I'd lost touch with the queens in Boston. <clears throat> I ran into her about a month ago on the street in New York from 45 years ago. But she and I are the only ones that are still alive. Everybody has been wiped out, my whole community. That community and my community in New York and my community in the 90s in Europe decimated. It's a remarkable and sobering fact. And I can't tell you how meaningful it is to see these works with that knowledge in mind now. That's also what the ballad is about, isn't it? Yeah. Most of the people in the ballad are dead. I sit there and talk to them when I watch it occasionally. <clears throat> so I hope that some of these slideshows stand as an homage to them and be the one queen who is still alive from Boston. Now she loves the work. She collects everything she can find, any poster. At the time, she had problems. I mean, afterwards. Can we um, talk for a moment about Scopophilia and the experience of the Louvre? Your invitation and the experience of being alone in the Louvre. 
I was invited by a woman named Marie Laure Benedict. Um, I have enormous respect for this woman. And originally, Patrice Chereau invited me to collaborate with him. And then I found out that he thought collaboration, much as other men I've worked with, older men, thought I would, he would put some of my work into his work. <laughs> when I tried to collaborate with Araki in Japan, he thought he was giving me a class every week. <laughs> so anyway, Patrice Chereau and I split ways, and I started working with Mary Lore directly. And I, she trusted me completely. I didn't have any plan of what I was going to do like Patrice did. Actually, his installation did include some of my work. But I got offended when he wanted to put a picture of my mother next to a painting of a boxer. And I got very upset by it. And he refused to concede on that. So anyway, um, I started to explore the Louvre just with a friend who knew how to use a digital camera, which I didn't, and I still don't very well. And we went to the Louvre every week, and we were alone there. There was a guard here and there. There were no school groups. There were no control, people you know, controlling it, making sure. I, I was able to to uh, stroke David sculptures. It was incredible. Was it dark outside or? No, we start in the afternoon. We usually left when the museum closed. Oh, so it was open when you were there. I didn't it was closed that. to the public. It was mm, a Tuesday. Okay. Oh, right. okay. It was open, but it was closed to the public. And we spent the whole day there from morning till late afternoon. And. I was walking out of a small room, and I ran into a painting. And I knew this woman. I knew her really deeply. And I had this experience of being totally filled with beauty. And it gave me such joy. It was better than a drug. And I explored what had happened to me, and <coughs> my uh, my mentor and deep friend, Peter Hujar, had spoken to me about something called scopophilia, which is that every sense is filled by beauty, by looking, by the act of looking. And it's defined as a sexual thing, and it's not necessarily. It's the whole being is satisfied by looking. And so I named the show Scopophilia, I spend every week photographing in the Louvre. A lot of the photographs are tiny little details of big paintings. And that way, I made my own paintings out of these huge paintings. And I put them alongside dozens of old pictures of mine, most of which had never been shown. So I told stories with the compilation of these two things contrasted, stories about hair, stories about backs, stories about David, stories about Siobhan, all of these interventions of beauty and love. And it looks beautiful 
in our museum here. Yeah, it does. It's a really great screen. Yeah. And, and because it's natively digital, it It became digital, yeah. Yeah, it <laughs> has a crispness. Yeah, it fills the screen bigger than the other shows. I'll be curious to hear viewers, the first two, this show is um, unusual and special in that we've had the opportunity to show three slideshows, The Other Side, Ballad, and Scopophilia. And Scopophilia is the only one that began digitally. I'll be curious about people's perspective on that. I hope they don't look at that. <laughs> The making of my pictures, the definition of prints versus grids, all of that is secondary. I'm not going out to make art. I make my work, and it's, it's not about how it's shown. Or, I mean, I love slideshows. Mm -hmm. I'm not absolutely clear on what I'm saying, but it's my instinct is to rebel against that because I'm not going out to explore different ways of showing photography. That's not my intention. Everything is just what I need to do at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's my making of art. It's never that kind of, um, the words that come to mind are pedantic, mm -hmm. but that's too pejorative. They're not, you know, scholarly exercises in medium. So I hope people don't think about whether they're digital or analog or it's not important ultimately. Well, I think um, I completely take that point and I, I think of you as a storyteller and all of the media <laughs> is in the service of telling stories. Mm -hmm. That's well put. Thank you. I wonder if I might ask one more question and then turn it over to the audience. How do you feel about that? Yeah. <laughs> you good? Great. So, um, <laughs> I hope you have lots of questions. So, as we were working on this exhibition, um, we looked at a number of different titles. And you proposed, in the end, the title that we wound up using, um, which is the title, As the World Turns. And at first, I thought, well, soap operas are melodramatic. But then it grew on me, and I came to love that title as though it were my own idea, which it was not. Good. <laughs> it was your idea. No. Really, it was. And, but I haven't had a chance to ask you why that felt right to you. Sam? Sam? <laughs> How did we come up with that? I don't know, you, you called me then. You were like, what do you think about this title? No. We came up with it together. <laughs> Sam um, is Nan's studio manager. <laughs> yeah, he's my manager. Um, <laughs> he's mine too, if you would. <laughs> he's absolutely indispensable. But um, I don't know. I was trying to think of titles, and it's tacky, and I hated, uh, I hated those shows when I was a kid. The maid used to watch them, and I used to hate them. But I thought, you know, embrace culture. That's what I thought. 
Embrace America. No, I don't know. I, I had a guess, which was, my guess was that the thing about soap operas is that characters um, live in them and we come to know them over long periods of time. And this show spans almost 40 years. That's a good reason. All right. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> All right, you. a win for Jessica. Thank you. I thought it was a brilliant title, but maybe good. for a different reason. We have a few minutes. Uh, I would love to invite you all to ask some questions. Don't be scared. <laughs> I'm not seeing any. I never ask questions. I don't either. I get shy when it comes to question time. But this is a very special moment, so don't be shy. Yes. I used to, when it was the people in the pictures. Now, um, I think if I thought about that, I would stop showing. Like I said at the beginning, it's so strange to me that I'm up here. It doesn't really, I don't uh, internalize this so-called fame or whatever it is. It's not part of me. It's, um, I think, yeah, I, I guess one thing I think about is when I re-edit the ballad, partially I do it for my friends living and dead, and partially I do it because I want it to be crystal clear to the audience what I'm saying. So in that way, I think of the audience as intelligent, insightful people who are going to watch the ballad with an open mind and have a scopophilic attack. I don't know. I, <laughs> I never want to be mean to my audience. I kind of embrace them, I guess. But if I sat at home and thought about my work, I mean, once it goes out, most of it is outside me. The one exception is my paintings and drawings, which I've started to show. I feel so naked when they're in the public, which is what I felt like when I was a kid showing. The whole month or six weeks I was showing, I would be, I would feel like a part of me was in public and I would feel destroyed, really distraught. And then there's that postpartum when the show comes down. But now I've shown so long, it doesn't do that to me. I mean, I care a lot about audiences on that level, that I make it clear what I'm trying to say, politically, emotionally, all that. But when my drawings are up, which have just been shown twice now, I am, my heart and soul are revealed. So then it's hard for me. Did that answer your question? Yeah. 
did you hear I was loving it? <laughs> it's a job. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> First daughters, first daughters we like. <laughs> That's my new work. All right. That started it. <laughs> That's for Sam. I'm doing that for Sam so he can meet them all. It's <laughs> such an exciting idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I love fashion, and I like to look, still like to look at fashion, picture, fashion photographs. I love fashion photographs from the 40s, 30s, 40s, particularly, and some of, a lot of the Italian <clears throat> Vogue stuff that's been really radical. Actually, fashion was much more radical in the 40s, 50s than it is now most of the time. Um, I, I love it. I have a lot of problems with how thin the girls are and what's being perpetuated through fashion. I could go on that for a long time. But when I was 18, living with the Queens, I just loved it. It was beauty for me. I had never seen art photography and until I took this one course. And that was really for me. But until then, I didn't know <clears throat> that when there was art photography, I just knew fashion. And I would steal the Vogues every month and bring the European Vogues, bring them home, and me and the Queens would devour them. That was one of my positions in the house. <laughs> and <clears throat> now I'm doing it as a job. But most of the time, I take pleasure in it. I like casting it. Usually, I use my friend Isla's daughter, who's my muse, living in Germany. Gorgeous young woman. So I like to use my friends, as always. But it's fun. You get to see beautiful women, be some nice clothes, some nice makeup sometimes. And I don't think my <clears throat> fashion photographs are very radical but sometimes they reach some something. I don't know what you would call it. Do you know my fashion photographs, Mark? Yeah. They feel. But they were never published as fashion, unfortunately. But you sometimes repurpose <coughs> fashion photographs in slideshows. Mm -hmm. and, um, Not so much in slideshows. Some well, in the... Uh, yeah, in, I guess in the 80s. From the Tilda Swinton photograph? In, in, the, in the children's slideshow, Farley. Oh yeah, I, that's yeah. not fashion. That's it's for fact. Yeah, it is fashion. It is right. well. It it's was a lot of fashion. It was work for hire, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. For a kids' magazine in Germany that I yes. love, and I met a lot of beautiful children that way. Amazing children. It gave me a lot of access to children. Um, so I did a big book of children, like four hundred pages. Uh, 
that was necessary with the publisher, but a child couldn't ever pick it up. That's the no. problem I have with it. Um, what other fashion have you seen? Oh, I just did a book for a document magazine of 50 pages in which I edited recent fashion photographs for Saint Laurent with uh, old photographs of mine that have never been seen from my archive and a couple of paintings of mine. And I really like it. I really like doing that. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Thank you. Shall we take one more question? I see, yes, in the back. <coughs> I'll just repeat that so everyone yeah, can hear it. What was the process of bringing the show to the Portland Museum of Art, and what role did the museum play? The museum played the whole role. It's more like, what did I play? <laughs> <laughs> Serious. <clears throat> I said yes, and then you took it from there. You guys worked really hard. And sometimes I engaged, and most of the time I said, I'm traveling. See you later. <laughs> But it's been a real pleasure. It's been wonderful to be here and hang it, I have to say. Thank you so much. I change the show around and around and around. I try all different things. And frankly, Jessica and Samira weren't used to that because they haven't done a lot of shows here with living artists. And that makes a big difference. <laughs> I'll say to this audience what I said to you privately last night, which is the unbelievable privilege of watching a true artist at work is worth any amount of lifting. <laughs> <laughs> and I will stick by that, uh, by that uh, position until the day I die. And I think one of the things that's been special about this evening's conversation for me is that we have also had, by way of this conversation, a chance to hear you talk and experience the process of decision-making and, and thinking about what this complicated act of making art is. I hope you all become artists. <laughs> all the students, anyway. I think we're going to say good night um, with our thanks to you all for coming and our deep wish that you enjoy the show come back regularly and take your time in it. It's, um, this is a, a once in a lifetime opportunity and I'm so thankful that we can all be here to enjoy it. Thank you.